0: proclaim today that you are indeed greater, greater than the sins that we build up in our lives, greater than the sin that, that challenges every part of creation. We are raised to new life. In you, we are a new creation, and we gather as your people to celebrate and worship, to proclaim that you are our King, that you are God. Thank you for the privilege of coming together as family and friends to worship you. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Y'all sound great. Y'all may go ahead and grab a seat if you don't mind. Well, welcome to Grace Fellowship. My name is Brian Henderson. I am one of the elders here at Grace. And it's great to have you here today. If you're a guest, thanks for coming to worship with us. You have actually caught us in the middle of a series called You Ask For It. And I don't know about you all, but I've really enjoyed this series. A matter of fact, when Joel, a few weeks ago, brought up the idea of having this series to where we would actually let you all ask us questions, things that are on your heart, things that are on your mind, things about faith, about following Jesus, about church life, I thought that that was a brilliant idea. So I was, thanks, thanks, Joel, for letting me have a chance to share um, as teaching. What we've, we've done is we've kind of teamed up on this. We've taken several questions. And uh, I think we've, we've really enjoyed it. I don't know, but how about y'all? Have y'all enjoyed the series so far? Great. Great. We've tackled some tough issues, and, and today is no exception. And um, actually, I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, Phil actually texted me a fortune cookie he saw yesterday. And in that fortune cookie, it says, tomorrow, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And I was like, okay, that's his cue for me to don't mess it up and be brief. So we're just going to kind of dive in, and today's question, I love it. It is, it is a very thoughtful question. It's a great question, and I love it because it's a foundational question. It really kind of gets right at the heart of the gospel. And here's the question. It says this, does God forgive intentional sin? And, and, and aside to that, it also says, if you know you're in bondage to a sin but feel unable to get out, but you want to get out. Are you forgiven? It's a great question, great question. And I want us to take a moment to notice some of the words that, that this person included in the question, words like forgive and intentional and bondage and unable and want to. These are words that communicate desire and emotion. And I sense from this question that this person is wrestling. And from this question, I believe we can make a couple observations. First of all, I'd say that, that this person is wrestling which means that I believe that this is a believer asking questions. This is someone who who knows there's something that they're transgressing. Something's wrong here, and it doesn't sit well with them. I don't think an unbeliever would necessarily ask this question. I think in many cases, people who don't have a relationship with God, what they would do when they feel these things in their life is they would either avoid the issue altogether, and I think they would certainly refuse to describe this problem in their heart and their life as being a sin problem. So today, I'm going to go ahead and approach this topic. I'm going to answer this question as if I'm talking to a family member, to a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, okay? And I think that's the way we can kind of, kind of pursue this together from Scripture if we are talking about a family issue. However, if you are here today and you're worshiping with us and you are, you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, maybe you're still trying to think about God and think about your big picture of who you, know, who you are and, and what this, the spirituality is in your life, then, then that's fine. You know, Don't check out on us. You know, Don't leave us here um, at the beginning, because I think what you'll see is by going through this process with us, you're going to get a chance to see how God uh, deals with his people, his, his children, when we mess up. And I hope that you're going to get a chance to see that, that God loves you very much, and he actually desires to draw you into a deeper relationship with him through Christ as well. So with that being said, let's go ahead, and if you want to open up your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the sixth book of the New Testament, um, seventh chapter, sixth book, if you're not a mathematician, then that's going to be Romans chapter 7, and we're going to be exploring verses 4 through 25 together. So Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 25, and I will warn you a little bit here in advance, this is going to be a, a kind of expansive part of the text we're going to look at together, but I I really didn't feel comfortable breaking it up because Paul is, is building this, this this stream of thought that I believe is important for us to understand as Christians with this trying to answer this question about does God forgive intentional sin. So, in Romans seven, we're seeing we're seeing Paul, who's an apostle sent by Jesus out to reach um, the Gentile people. That's basically people who were not Jewish. Um, he's talking to the people, the followers of Christ in Rome, and he's trying to help them understand the nature of this struggle with sin in their life. And he's doing it by teaching them about the the purpose and the influence of the Old Testament law that was given. And I believe that in doing so, he's going to also help us see um, what it looks like to struggle with the law ourselves and this struggle with habitual or intentional sin at times in our life. So follow me beginning in verse 4 if you don't mind. Paul says here, he says, So my brothers and sisters... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, you catch that word from the question, what once bound us, we have been released from the law. So that we serve in a new way the spirit and not in the old way the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was had it not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded to it by this commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment it put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it is righteous, and it is good did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, then I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is actually sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow, there's a lot in there a lot of what to do's, what not to do's, how to do's. It's like a tongue twister in Scripture, so try to read that real fast in time. But what's interesting is it's almost like someone went back in time from our series today. Last few weeks ago, or last week, Joel talked about some of you engineers building a time machine, and maybe y'all did. And maybe you all took our question from this series, and you went back and said, Paul, we would really love it if you could kind of you know, give us a hint, help us out with this thing. We want to know why we struggle with continual sin nature. And he breaks it out here in this text. Because in these verses, Paul begins to unpack some really incredible truth about our struggle with sin. So first of all, to understand, if God forgives this intentional, and I also wrap into this habitual sin, um, in our lives, we first need to come to terms with, with what is sin? what is sin? In the Old Testament, there are three primary words. There's several, many words they use, but there's three common primary words they use, the Old Testament uses to communicate the meaning of sin. The first word is hara, and it simply means to miss or to fail. It means that we miss the mark of God's perfect moral standards. It reminds me of the story of a, of a little boy at one time, took his bow and arrow, and he'd go out in the, in the backyard, and he would shoot his arrows up in the air. And when the arrows would come down and land in the yard, he'd run over with spray paint, and he would spray his target around it. Well, one day, his sister came out, and she says, whoa, what are you doing? You can't do it that way. You're supposed to put the target at first and then shoot the arrow and see if you hit it. He goes, no, no, I like this other way better because this way I never miss. If you think about look around the world. Is that not what we, we see going on all around us? The world, and it's thinking is always trying to shoot their own little moral arrows wherever they want to shoot it. And then they'll draw the target around wherever it lands and say, this, is, this, is, this way is good for me, and your way is good for you, and let's just kind of do it our own way and do it our own thing, and we'll all be happy together, right? But God, through the law, is trying to come out and say, no, no, that's not how it works. I am the standard. Hata, you miss. You fail to meet that. So we see in one example that we fail to meet the mark. There's a second Hebrew word used for sin. It's called pesha. And this basically, this word means to breach a covenant, okay? And in those days, when someone would breach a covenant, it was basically like declaring war. There would be a rupture between the relationship between either two people or two nations, and normal relations between those two parties would no longer exist. There was basically a state of war, a lack of peace there. And a third common word for sin is, is Avon, A-V-O-N. And Avon simply means, in the Hebrew, means crooked or bent. And ladies, I promise there was no one from Maybelline or Mary Kay paying me to say that today, but I thought it was kind of funny that Avon means crooked or bent. So, um, so we have Hada means to miss or to fail, pesha, pesha means to break a promise, and Avon means to be crooked or bent. So therefore, when God talks to us about sin... When he's trying to reveal this concept to us in Scripture and through Paul and his writings, he's trying to basically say that we have missed the mark of his holy standards, we have broken the covenant, the peace treaty with him through sin, and that basically we're crooked and bent by our nature. We just don't measure up. And the consequences of sin, the consequences of sin, are really they're devastating. Four key areas I want you to think about what we see that sin has created a devastating impact in our world, in our life, is this. Besides creating this alienation between us and God, which we've kind of talked about, I think many of us are aware of, we also see that sin causes an estrangement between man and nature. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans and suffers because of the fall, because of the presence of sin in the world. Today, many people talk about the global warming debate or climate change. And no matter where you line up on that argument, you don't have to look at global temperatures to realize there's something wrong. I mean, we could just get in our cars and drive over to Kingsport Landfill, hang out there for a day. Or how about this? Go jump in the in the cage over at the wolf exhibit at Bay's Mountain. In either place, it wouldn't take you long to realize that man and nature, we've got issues. You know what I'm saying? So – there's an area of estrangement between man and nature. There's also sin. Also alienates us from each other, man from man. You know, this past week we've had headlines about a terrorist attack in Chattanooga. We had a movie theater shooting in Louisiana. There's been talk, constant talk of racism, uh, scandals, thefts. Everywhere we look, we see that we are hurting each other, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Sin has caused an alienation between each other, between man and man. And finally, we see that sin alienates man from himself. Perhaps here in America, that's even more prevalent than other places in the world, because as as people here, as human beings, we are constantly struggling to find ourselves. And in some cases, we see extreme examples of this. I think about Bruce Jenner. The very sad story of his wrestling, his deep hurt in in wrestling over his gender identity. That is part of of the sin nature expressing itself without within a human being. We also see cases of health and issues and disease like cancer and battles with depression and heart disease. We, all around us, all the time, see evidence of the fall and of sin waging war in our bodies, in our lives. So sin is a problem. What is interesting is that we are really blind to sin Without God revealing it to to us through the law, and so in Romans seven, what Paul is trying to do is he's he's basically trying to help us see that the law is kind of like a microscope. You know, microscopic organisms—they've always been around, they've always existed, but we didn't really get a chance to study them and and see them until scientists, you know, developed the microscope. Right. Well, like a microscope, the law helps us see, and it reveals sin and its existence, and now we can look at it more closely. And Paul is trying to use the law to help us see. This is sin. This is what it looks like. This is what's going on. And that's why we have this struggle with doing the things that we shouldn't do and not doing the things that we should do. Uh, you probably heard of the term sins of omission and sins of commission. That's what's going on here. And Paul reveals this dynamic. If you go look back in verse 15, this is where he kind of starts playing it out. He says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate to do. I do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree. I have to agree the law is good because I want to do this, but I can't live out. Can't live it out. And jump ahead to verse twenty-one. You move on to verse twenty-one. He says, "So I find this law is at work, but although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law." But now I'm beginning to see this other law that's at work with me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So we're beginning to see something here in this text that gets to the heart of this question about, you know, will God forgive me for intentional or habitual or continual sin? Because we learn that God established this law to convict us of sin – and we know that Jesus said he, he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. So therefore, even in Christ, we're going to be subject to the same emotions and the same struggles that Paul describes here in this passage. And we're going to find it impossible to do what we want to do. And even when we do good, we're going to realize that the evil is always right there with us, and it's part of our nature. So part of the answer to this question is to realize that everyone, every believer, every Christian – deals with this same struggle of being a repeat offender when it comes to sin. When we ask that question, God, can you forgive me again? We're not alone in asking that question. Matter of fact, if we would ever take the time to take the risk to go spend time with another believer and peel back the layers and get real, we would realize they've been asking the same question. And healing actually begins in those environments. But praise God, praise God that he, through Paul, gives us verses 24 and 25. Where Paul says this, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25 says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm sure that y'all, many of y'all have heard the expression, you should never bring a knife to a gunfight, right? Basically, don't come with a weapon that's not fit for the occasion, okay? You'll, you'll come out of losing end. At the end of World War II, President Harry Truman had to make a very serious and devastating decision to use nuclear weapons against Japan because he thought that that was the only way we could end the war with Japan and, believe it or not, limit vast costs of life. Well, sin is such a serious problem that God decided he too would use his most powerful weapon in order to secure peace with us. And his weapon of choice was himself, basically, by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Because you see, the penalty of sin is death, as Paul said. It is death. And Jesus takes that penalty of death for you and for me, And he took it upon himself when he died on the cross. And on the cross, he took up an infinite amount of wrath and rebellion and brokenness and pain. And he demolished it with an infinite amount of love and justice and mercy. And that that offering was so great that it basically covered over all sin for all time, for all people who place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul, the very same guy who wrote at the end of Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death, joyfully proclaimed at the very beginning of Romans chapter 8 in verses verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit and the life of Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that, my friends, is the good news. That is the gospel, that through Christ we have peace with God. We are no longer held in sin. We are now free through the Spirit. We are no longer enemies to the cross of Christ. Now, there's a couple of theological terms I want to give to you here, and I don't mean to sound all churchy, but I think they're very important for us as Christians to think about. And the first theological term I want to share with you that describes what Jesus has done for us. On the cross is the term justification. And it simply means this. It means that in Christ, God no longer treats us like a rebel. He now treats us like a friend. And because of this, our relationship with God is secure even if we struggle in continual or habitual sin. Because the security is not based upon our ability to perform. It's not based upon our ability to persevere and live a perfect life. It's actually based upon God's ability to preserve us, And to see us the way he sees his son. He sees us through Christ's perfect life. And another theological term that's relevant to our question today is the term sanctification. And sanctification basically is the process of being set apart for God's work and being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. One of the ways that I think about trying to to create a distinction between these two in my mind is this. Let's let's pretend – say, for example, I'm an illegal immigrant. And I go across to a faraway foreign land, and I get picked up by their immigration people, and they send me before the immigration judge. And he looks at me, and he says, Brian, um, you are here illegally, and but good news today. I have got this incredible relationship with my model ideal citizen over here. His name is Jesus. And because of his love and because of him vouching for you um, – you are now free. You're part of the citizenship. You're, you're part of the family. You've got full status. You're going to be here. You're going live, to live with us. That's done, taken care of. And my power is judge, I sovereignly decree you free and clear. That's justification. Nothing I can do. That's by the grace of God. But let's say he then says, okay, but now, Brian, I want you to do this. I want you to learn our customs. I want you to learn our language. And in this case, the language is very different than my normal language. And he says, I want you to hang out with my model citizen Jesus here, and I want you to do everything he does. I want you to watch him. I want you to learn to speak like him, learn the language like him, treat other people like him, learn the streets of the cities as well as he knows them. That, my friends, is sanctification because I have a role in that, a work to do. And there will be plenty of times I'm like, wow, you're speaking way too fast. I just cannot follow. Or I'm sorry, I got turned on the wrong street. Where are you? Please text me. Help me find you. That is the experience that we sometimes confuse is our justification and our sanctification. Justification is God's work through Christ. Sanctification is our work with Christ to become more conformed to his image. But when we confuse the two, we can sometimes feel like maybe God won't forgive us again or we've lost our salvation or something like that. So I wanted to kind of illustrate those two things to you. So the question is, back to our question, does God forgive intentional sin the answer is yes that if you were in christ then you were forgiven there's now for therefore no condemnation in christ jesus you've been justified by faith in christ and now you have peace of god jesus could never love you more if you did right than he loved you on that day that he went ahead and paid the penalty for your sin on the cross he cannot love you anymore and remember the time that Jesus, when Jesus was asked by Peter, Peter came and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus replied and says, no, Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven times, depending on which translation you're looking at. This is Jesus' way of saying keep forgiving because God keeps forgiving. There's no limit on God's forgiveness. But I do want to caution us to please not take this forgiveness and this love for granted. Sin is very serious business. It required Jesus, Jesus, Jesus' life. It took his life on the cross. And when it's allowed to run unchecked in our lives, it can be very devastating. I want you to write this down if you don't mind The saying. Remember this. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and make you pay a higher price than you'd ever want to pay. You think about that a moment. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay a higher price than you ever want to pay. And just so no one accuses me of going soft on sin here, because where grace abounds, I mean where sin abounds, grace abounds on the more. We we know that. But sin is very serious. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. When I was in college, I had a good friend who lived in, uh, his parents lived in Europe, and so they invited me to come spend a few weeks with them. And so I got a chance to go spend several weeks in Europe. And one of the uh, for a weekend, had a chance to go down to Paris, and one of the stops I made was to the Louvre Museum. And if you're not familiar with the Louvre, it's a famous art museum in Paris. And in the Louvre is one of the most famous paintings of all time. It's the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. And many of you all have heard of it. It's considered one of the most famous pieces of art of art by one of the most famous artists of all time. And when you stand and you look before the Mona Lisa, you you admire just just the creative process that Leonardo would have done to create this. And and for centuries people have admired and thought and studied this piece of work. It's actually even enclosed behind a bulletproof piece of glass. But let's say that I could get behind that piece of glass and I decided that, you know, I don't think Leonardo knows what he's doing. I think I need to help him out a bit. I pull out a Sharpie, and I start drawing my little pictures of the Mona Lisa on the Sharpie. Well, it may look something like this. Now, you think about it. That seems insane. But when we start dabbling with sin, we're essentially marring the beautiful work that God's trying to create in us. It doesn't make sense. Another example over and over to so have several layers of frozen blood on the blade of a knife and then they take that knife and they tie it up to a tree and they wait illustration about what sin does but that's true we a lot of times we flirt with serious sin in our life and we don't address it and don't face into it it's just like killing ourselves slowly counseling other people, that we often get stuck in patterns of sin for three primary reasons. The first one is spiritual ignorance. The second one is weakness. And the third is just outright disobedience. I would want to praise God that you are struggling with this sin, because this struggle to me indicates that you're you're bothered by it. This, there's, there's a relationship that's strained. And this awareness actually would Possibly and you're thinking about who you are in Christ and who God is in your life. I'd also try to look to see if you understand how the gospel should be applying to your life, where you're at. we probably hang out on verses like Galatians 2.20, which says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son. That seem to trip you up and set you up for failure. I would share with you an acrostic Called HALTS. H A L T S S. And it stands for hungry, angry, lonely. 415, which says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet, he didn't sin. He is overcome. We look at First Corinthians 10, which said that God will provide a way out of a temptation, if we can be patient and endure. And finally, we would look at the areas of willful disobedience in our, in your life and in my life, and we would look at um, signs that basically that, that maybe maybe we're not even a true follower of Christ if we're being that disobedient. And we would talk about the gospel and our need for redemption. But like I said earlier, let's talk as if we're believers, if we're Christians. We can get stuck there. In this case... I would try to figure out deep down what's the sin beneath the sin. Where is there an idol? Where is there a root of unbelief that's telling you that you can't trust God to give you his very best, that you're going to have to do it for yourself in your way? Tim Keller says that the sin beneath all those sins is a lack of joy in Christ. And I believe he's on to something there because when we continually run after sin in our life, we're basically saying that, But there's something that's more desirable to us in that moment than Jesus. Let's dig in and find out what that is. Um, I'd also warn you, though, we probably have a serious conversation about the consequences of continued disobedience to God. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how dreadful it is to fall into the hands of a living God when we're basically saying, not your way, God, my way. I would remind you, though, of his great love for you and that he disciplines those he loves as his children. And he will allow pain and suffering into your life out of love in hopes that you would turn and finally realize that your life and your joy and your peace and your hope should be found in him. And we talk about the prodigal son, about how bad his life had to get before he would finally turn around and say, I need to go home. Where is my dad? That is one of the most painful things I've seen in pastoral work. Is to see people who are just so hardened against doing what even they might know they should do that I realize they haven't hit bottom yet, and you have to just lovingly let them do their thing. Knowing that God loves them enough and praying that he will bring them back, but not knowing how bad it'd have to get. How bad it'd have to get. But then I'd also ask you questions about your time in God's Word, your time in prayer your time in authentic Christian community. We probably talk about how here at Grace Fellowship, community groups are the core of how we do life here as a church, that in community groups, it's where truth meets life and no one stands alone. And I'd probably encourage you to find a group and commit to it. And we'll be talking about that here in the coming weeks, as the fall semester kicks off. But I'd also remind you of God's great love for you and his forgiveness that he never stops loving us. He's always there with us, no matter where we are and what we do. Perhaps the best way to remember what God has done for us is to remember the the time when Jesus gathered his disciples together for one last meal. This last meal, he would would share with his disciples. He would do this before he was to be crucified and before he was to be buried and resurrected and eventually return back to his Father in heaven. And at this meal, he would take the bread... And he would say, this is going to be my body. This represents my body broken for you. And this cup of wine, this represents my blood that is poured out for you. These are the signs of a new covenant. A new covenant I make with you, my body and my blood. I'm destroying the Pesha, the broken covenant. I'm bringing this together into a new covenant. And there he offers his life for ours, and in him we have forgiveness of sins, and we have the hope of eternal life. And when we gather together, he asks us to always remember this covenant and to always remember him. So we're going to do this together today to close out our time and think about, does God forgive us of intentional sin? The answer is yes. It cost him dearly. God used the nuclear option of, his, the, son of his, the life of his son. It was costly, but it was infinite in overcoming the problem that we face. And we can celebrate that and enjoy it as we take communion together. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the servers, if you don't mind, and Phil, to go ahead and come on up. And I wanted to take some time. I want you to bow your heads, um, close your eyes if you need to, but just want to take some time to let you and me just do some, some business with God in our hearts. And I'm going to guide us through a few. A few prayers, just to ask you to pray, to reveal some things. And then when, we're, when I'm finished with this time of prayer, feel free to come on up to a station and take the elements—the bread and the juice—and take communion when you're ready. So as you bow your head, I first of all want you to—I want you to ask God to help you understand why you do the things that you shouldn't do and why you don't do the things you should do. To reveal in your life any strongholds of sin. As for His grace and His mercy. Invite Him into that. I want you to take time to thank Him. See Him offering you the bread and the wine, the Last Supper. Sitting with the disciples around the table and He sees you and looks you right in the face. He knows your heart. And you thank Him for the gift of His life and for a new covenant of peace. Ask Him for the strength to overcome the troubled areas, the continuous sins that you struggle with. like with Jesus. After He ascended to be with the Father, He sent His disciples out together in teams to share the gospel. Ask yourself, where's my team? God, revealed to me someone that I can go out and journey in this life with. Who can I share my deepest hurts and struggles with? Who can help me overcome these strongholds and hold me accountable and love me and let me experience Your grace? Ask God to bring that person or persons to your mind and to your heart and commit to Him to take a step forward into a deeper relationship with these people so that you can experience the forgiveness and loving and grace that you so long. We need you. We admit that we are sinners and that many times we get stuck. We confess that we have idols that are deep in our hearts. Places we go to find the life we think we need or want. And those places are dark and they're far from you. But Lord, we know that you are with us in every circumstance. We accept your offering as the atonement for this sin. And we believe and trust that we do have peace through your shed blood on the cross and through your body broken for us. We praise you, God. We love you. Lift us up. Raise us to this new life that we've sang about today. Through your spirit, God, give us strength. Through your family, give us hope. And may we never take our eyes off you to find our true life Our true joy and our true peace. In your precious name we pray. Amen. If you like, you may come forward.